0: Founders, welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in.
1: Okay, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with the co-founder of UX Reactor, Satyam Kantameni. With more than 15 years of experience in digital design at PayPal and Citrix and a degree from Harvard Business School, Satyam learned that design was in fact the key driver of business, not just a supporter. With this philosophy, he co-founded UX Reactor in 2015, which is a user interface design firm. With a highly skilled team, Satyam's company has topped the Inc 5000 list, racking up high valuation and loyal clients through the principle of good collaborative design. UX Reactor is growing like crazy. So Satyam, let's get right to it. Thank you for being on the podcast today, my friend.
0: Thank you for having
1: me. Okay, so we're going to start off where we always start off in this conversation, which is around your origin story. How in the world did this company uh, get started?
0: Uh, there's a there's a long story and a short. I'll try to keep the story in between. Uh, the, the simplest... Uh, Thing that happened is like when you start connecting the dots and being in the line of work for a while, you start connecting that you know the, the market needs a profession or the market needs a, uh, a certain style of approach, and that's not happening in the market as much. And then you realize that you know if you can't do it, uh, then no one else will. Uh, so and so that just was a, a rallying call because I built design teams and in internal and large companies and realized that they, they were all falling short. Uh, falling short because they didn't have the right people or they didn't have the right process, they didn't have the right environment uh, or the right mindset, all right? And so every time, and for having done this for two large companies over a decade, uh, and just realized that there's a different way to approach this. Uh, you have to kind of define a different playbook, different uh, set of how we groom people and talent. And so we ended up saying that let's do it ourselves. So I would say UX Reactor, is actually a grand experiment, uh, an experiment that started out with like, let's try to do it a little different. Uh, mm. And that's how we founded it. We did not know where it would go. We did not know where we, uh, you know, how, how we would kind of do whatever contract, but we tried to become a billion dollar company. There was no real vision, except for the fact that what's happening right now is not right. So that was, I would say the founding uh, story. And then uh, fortunately I was able to, my, my brother who's also my co-founder we both want the same line of work. Uh, and, uh, and so we ended up saying, let's connect uh, and let's figure out how how we can go approach this. And we went on structurally to the roots of how to build a company, where we said we will create our own playbook. We'll groom our own talent. Uh, and through our own talent, we will build a professional services firm uh, and uh, we will approach it the right way of how it should be approached. And obviously, you know, uh, seven years or six, little less than seven years later, that's played out really well because, you know, Seems like it's working.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So when you were first looking at it, what did you, what would you say was the problem that you identified that was not being adequately solved? So,
0: and and this is, uh, for those of, I think the listeners would be like not understanding the true construct of how a, a software system works. I'll probably kind of go take a step back. Sure. So most software today is, uh, our system, or technology, or digital systems, are built uh, from a technology first perspective. So, which is like, let's put it on a web, let's do a mobile, let's you know, put together a, a application. But it's never a user first construct. I mean, there is a user in that dialogue, but it's kind of way later in the process. So, the line of work I do is called user experience design, or we kind of do was user experience design. So, we really have to kind of define. Who the user is, what the journey is, what the impact is, and you kind of really have to kind of go at designing that. So today, what you notice is a lot of technologies out there that is hard to use, hard to navigate, hard to kind of work around. Uh, and when you have systems like these, you know, dad, that's why you know you have products that work well. That is why an Apple is the most valuable company in the world. Yeah, right? there's a reason. It's not that you know they're not making uh, you know technology doesn't exist that others don't have access to. Uh, and, and that's kind of where an organization like us comes into the fore. Uh, but the challenge that happens is most people don't know how to leverage the skill. They use it very much like design is just the word design. Where Everyone assumes that it is the look and feel of a product. Mm. And it, in fact, the, the statistic is 40% of products still today get shipped without talking to one user. Right. So, and when you don't have that user in your in the loop, and you don't think about the user and their journey and their experience in that loop, it, things start failing. Now, again, you, if you go to a hotel and you start thinking about, you know, why is a red carlton charging so much? But that same mentality now has to apply to uh, software systems because that's the only interface we're engaging with, and so that's what's not happening in the market. And uh, so that was an opportunity. So a lot of companies like the, the PayPal, the Googles, I mean, all the large companies in the Valley invest in these functions So they have user experience team that get paid as much or higher than engineers. So they're, they're very, very uh, you know, effective job role. But then again, the challenge is that's not, uh, It's, it's uh, now when you look at that need, that talent itself is like, there's no school of user experience. Just about now start, people are starting to learn this. It's such a hodgepodge of skills. Uh, and perspective it's more of a problem solving mindset than actually a line of uh, uh, something you go to grad school or undergrad for There are universities that are trying to teach this now but that's still not gotten there the the market demand is much higher so you start looking at the people level confusion there is market uh, business level confusion How to leverage it you start seeing all this confusion while the need I mean you have companies like Apple and Airbnb and know, Zappos that have really been making a killing by leveraging this philosophy. And so you just start noticing that there's a lot of haphazardness there. So that's what the business opportunity was for us.
1: Cool. So if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying some of, the, some of the tech companies that are doing really well are doing it in part because they understand this importance and are implementing it. But for the vast majority of businesses that aren't those few titans, it's still somewhat something they don't understand and there's not even a lot of trained talent out there to help them with that. Is that, is that kind of it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I
0: work with so many leaders and founders and uh, CEOs where they're like, I've hired two designers. I'm like, why am I not becoming an Apple? I mean, like, no, it's a mindset shift. Uh, and, uh, and that's kind of where, uh, so even to kind of be a consulting firm on that, and you need to have a team that believes in that philosophy, which is not like, so again, the same problem, like if I hire the same people that other companies are hiring, uh, then you end up being at the same place. Yeah, so that's the reason why we groom our own talent and our own playbook. It's a whole process. Uh, and 99% of our talent is uh, all groomed uh, through our own uh, training models.
1: Is the mindset that you hold that, that is different than maybe others, would it be articulated in that it's more that maybe the the other mindset or the one that is not yours is more that user experience or you you know user design is more cosmetic that it's just like you said about the look and the feel whereas you have more of a mindset of no this is all the way down this is this is specific to the actual interaction that a customer desires and the usability of the of the product is is that it am I hearing that right or, or am I missing it
0: so there are three levels of value creation in this line of work. Yes. Sorry, I'm geeking out on the technology side, but that's
1: what I'm, I'm asking. i intentionally.
0: So there is a UI layer, which is the look and feel, how it, uh, how you can kind of uh, the reaction to uh, how you kind of look at a particular product. Uh, so that is minimum table standards uh, or table stakes. Uh, you need to do that. But the next level is understanding the user, their context, what they want, when they want it. a a user coming into a product, let's say you're working into a bank, the first time you log into your bank account will be a different experience from the 99th time you're logging into your account. Right, so there's a journey that keeps evolving, context that keeps evolving, your system has to evolve around you Mm. Uh, and then the third level is the whole organization. When you call the customer service in the bank, when you actually are doing the IVRs or the kiosk or the ATM, or you are actually doing it online, they all have to have the same experience. So now you're starting to look at an end-to-end experience that's designed. They're all digital systems, they're all aspects. But now what happens is many companies just look at it in a visual level and then leave it there. When you start looking at it in the end-to-end experience, you have to change processes, organization design. There's a lot of other variables that you really have to think through it. It's a value that can be created because once you get to that third level of true value creation. Uh, no one can compete. I mean, it, the moat is just the as as Warren Buffett says about the economic moat. It's just so big that you know you just way ahead of everything else that's ever happened in that business.
1: Mm. That sounds complicated. <laughs> so you 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 mentioned de- designing your own playbook. You know to be able to do this. How how difficult was it? How many iterations? You know, did did you end up going through where you felt like you had a playbook that could handle that that complexity and, and deliver on that mindset?
0: No, it's actually fascinating. And I always say this on a separate level, on a personal level, is like, you know, what's your flavor? And I would use the statement. I say that if I had 10 days to live, you know, what would my flavor be to give to my kids? Uh, so that's a philosophy that I've had, uh, obviously inspired by uh, an pr- awesome professor called Professor Randy Posh, uh, who actually was a professor at Carnegie Mellon. And then he really, you know, pushed this thing because he was uh, he was identified with uh, terminal cancer, and then he identified that he said, "I'm going to write a book as a mm-hmm. final," and he called it the last the lecture. So, now taking a page out of that, all through my career, so I I, I saw his journey a little early in my in my career, uh, and uh, and said, "What is my playbook?" And so a lot of the playbook that kind of has been a start uh, became a core to UX reactor was all the lessons. I'd learned in the line of work, uh, all through my work, which are like, why are we doing this? Okay, I would do it differently. I would do it differently. And then when UX Reacted came, that playbook already was ten years in making. Uh, wow. Was like, you know, this you need to hire talent this way. Uh, one of the biggest philosophies we have is it's a uh, is, is again if you really think about uh, the power of a polymath, uh, someone like a you know, especially when you look at the last Renaissance that happened, you look at someone like a Leonardo da Vinci. He was actually multi skilled. He was a problem solver who, who had understood biology well, understood art well, understood engineering well. And that's what we need today. So, the playbook mm. was that, that philosophy that we need to groom talent that actually uh, understands our problem solvers first and designers next. Uh, so, that these are all the things that come together. So, how do you even hire those people? That, that's part of the playbook. Then, how do you kind of groom them? How do you kind of, uh, you know, what kind of skills do you need to kind of solve a business problem? So these were all things that were coming together in the playbook over years and years of just thinking through it. Uh, And uh, so that's how the playbook came to be. It wasn't something that happened overnight.
1: That's brilliant. Do you think every business owner should be thinking in those terms as well, that design their own playbook? Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: I think the podcasts and everything are also a way to spread that construct. But I generally believe that every person has their own playbook, uh, personal, professional, and so on. Uh, and it's always good to kind of be very deliberate about it. Uh, and just for the reason that it helps propagate that knowledge much cleaner and faster. Uh, and tomorrow, I mean, one of the things as we groom people and I, we call UX React as a nurturing environment. Everybody is a mentor. Everybody is a mentee. Uh, And the only other nurturing environment that I've seen that works so well is the military. where The general was always a lieutenant. And they've all gone through the same journey and they've all gone through the same aspect. And that's kind of why they actually you know, fit too well and they have high camaraderie, which is yeah. another thing I'd see missing a lot more. But again, coming back to your question about the playbook, I actually think that's a technique that I think everyone should leverage uh, just because it's a, it has a timelessness to it.
1: Yeah. I've got another question about the playbook. But before that, you mentioned the military, which was coming to mind. Uh, earlier when you were talking about a wide variety of, of knowledge, right? That problem solvers first, designers second. And it makes me think about, I was never a Navy SEAL, but one of my clients is a Navy SEAL. I have some friends who are Rangers. And what I've gathered from them is that there is this combination of generalist mixed with specialist in each person. That, let's say, a group of six Navy SEALs go on a mission. They should each be trained enough in all the different things that if the medic goes down, somebody else could be the medic, even if that's not their primary specialist, you know, or the idea of leadership, whoever is, in, you know, whoever's walking to the room first is now the leader. Like they learn to follow each other's points. And I just think that's interesting because we're in this weird, I don't know, it feels like to me a shift in what skill sets we need to be successful right now in this current climate. And it used to, it's gone back and forth between should I be a generalist? Should I be a specialist? and it feels like it's some unique combination of both, right? Like there's certain skills you gotta be really proficient at, but you also need to have, like Da Vinci you mentioned, you probably need to have some idea around customer skills or around uh, a business strategy, you know, th- that kind of thing. So I wonder if you could speak to that for a second.
0: No, it's actually fascinating you bring military because we very closely uh, uh, observe that system. So I come from a military family myself, uh, mm. Uh, So, always have studied that because how do you motivate people that come from different walks of life to kind of follow a similar structure and a similar ethos? And more importantly, stake the biggest thing that they have, which is their life. Right. So, you and that's just overall. And you look at team dynamics and leadership, there's a lot to learn from that. Uh, But when you start looking at the construct of Navy SEALs or you look at all these massive problem solvers, they are multi, uh, they're trained in different skills. Uh, Normally, if you look at a Normal platoon, there is always a sniper. There is there specialists. Yeah. Uh, but when you look at special forces, they are, you actually have everyone's a radio operator. Everybody is a medic. Everyone knows enough, uh, and that's when you become truly really powerful because you don't hold yourself down by the specialized silo that you are in. Yeah. Which is a fundamental problem that's happening with business today. Is like the uh, sales guy says, I'm a sales guy. I have a marketing guy says, I'm a marketing guy. And when you start looking at it on just into the experience layer, the customer hates it because they see it. Mm. Uh, they see it that when you call customer service, they're like, yeah, that was a product problem. I mean, no, that's your problem. Yeah, That's the company's problem. And that's, again, when you start putting in the ethos of what a Ritz Carlton or any of these other old companies that you yeah, have done really well. But a Disneyland or, 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 or the Disney ecosystem overall, they have really thought of everyone as a problem solver, everyone's a cast member. So I think that, that's the same mentality that applies. Uh, in fact, we, when we, uh, in our, our academy and as we groom talent uh, across the system, we use military analogies quite significantly. And it, there's an awesome video, a TED talk by Admiral McRaven uh, on the 10 things that he learned as being a Navy SEAL. Mm. Uh, that's a mandatory uh, watch for everyone. Mm. Just because you learn, that's a men- mentality that kind of comes through. Uh, yeah. Now, to your point of a specialized, specialist and generalist, uh, it's something that keeps coming up in a lot of in a line of work i say be a specialist before you become a generalist okay. because if you are not good at something you will not be uh, you know you will not be taken seriously uh, and especially in a consulting world or anything else as a matter of fact you, you cannot have a ceo who was never good at one thing right yeah. uh, because they may know a little bit of everything but then you know th- that there's very easy to run circles around them so be good at something that's why you specialize in one thing so it's a t-shaped construct uh, and then know enough about others that you can actually be a generalist, but the world is run by orchestrators uh, and who can connect the dots and bring people together. And that's why you you know, see leaders are typically orchestrators.
1: Yeah. I like that. I like that idea of, you know, and it, sometimes that's, that's easier to start with, like, what is a skill? What is a, a vein of professional development or something that I think I could really get really good at. And then, Add to that just a little, you know, uh, context and color to your understanding of the world or the, you know, the service you're providing. Is is that kind of it?
0: Absolutely, absolutely.
1: Interesting. Uh, and so I want to go back real quick. I've got I've got so many little thoughts in my mind of things I want to touch on. I think I can remember it all. I wanted to go back to the playbook because I do think that's unique and I do think that's something. If I'm listening to it as as a as a founder, I'd be thinking, oh man, what's my playbook? You know, I like that idea. So are there any Are there any questions or if someone is listening and thinking like, yeah, I'd like to kind of venture into creating my own playbook. Is there any guide or or thing that would help them start that process? Like ask yourself this, you know,
0: maybe I need to create a playbook on doing a playbook. Yeah, Uh, exactly. (laughs) No, I I actually this is a technique we use even for hiring. And we say uh, because one of the big things for being an awesome uh, problem solver is to uh, deconstruct a problem. Uh, and it's to be a system thinker. And, and that's, a, that's a critical skill that we found uh, to work really well with how we pick a talent and how we groom a talent and how we also see them being successful. The simplest way I always say is variabilizing. That's a, that's a technique that we use. If you can take any problem and variabilize it and break it into subparts really fast, the faster you can do that, the faster you can define what that means. So like today, so like as I said, sharing with you, I'm working on a book right now where the manuscript is due end of the month. And I really wish there was a playbook that somebody had created and said, these are the 10 variables you need to think about when you're writing a book. Uh, and mm. these are the things that go in. So that's the same. Each one of us has gone through our own journey. And the best way to look at a playbook is <clears throat> what would you have told yourself 10 years back, five years back? And then what are the things that you would, and that just becomes a playbook. Like, just like you will tell your son, like when you become, uh, you know, get into workforce, this is what, or your daughter, as a matter of fact, <clears throat> what would you tell them? Uh, in, when you join your workforce for the first two years, this is what I would recommend from my lessons and this is my playbook. Uh, mm. This is what you would do, less like somebody wrote like the first 90 days as a book, right? So that's that's a playbook that someone said that this is what you should be doing when you join a job for the first 90 days. We are all learning on the job, we are all picking it up, we have learned, We have mentors are giving us coaching and so on and so forth and that all becomes playbook, it's just that what would I tell myself 10 years back so I could do it better and more effectively. And that just becomes the core of any playbook uh, when you pull that together.
1: That's awesome. And I imagine for your business, it also helps uh, articulate maybe the values and the assumptions that your business is making. Like we are approaching it in this way for this reason, right?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Because there's there's. When you write a playbook or you when you think in that construct that mindset you always are looking at how do i keep doing it better how do i keep because you're constantly challenging your assumptions like what is it like you may have written something in your playbook like i'm always going to hire somebody who shows these traits and then you see something else then like man that i completely missed that then you go readjust your playbooks it's a living document the same way as a design or when we work with our clients we constantly are rationalizing Pulling a transparent construct to how we are engaging. So this mindset. If you ask us, UX React is not successful because we are doing great work. It's just that we have awesome people who have awesome mindset, uh, and that together is what shows when we are engaged with clients, like uh, and, and so on and so forth. Uh,
1: and well, let's talk about that. You've you mentioned several times one of the one of the drives and the passions and the opportunities that you, that you saw was actually to be able to develop your own talent in a way that you would be you know, proud of and create a dangerous and a good, in a good sense, a dangerous team of problem solvers. Right. What, what have you found to be effective? What either training or processes, like what, what, how have you gone about training that talent?
0: So I'd say a couple of insights and I'll tell you about the process. So the insight says skill is overrated. Mm-hmm. Uh, skills can be taught. Skins can be picked up. This is a generation where you can sit on YouTube over the weekend and learn anything.
1: Yeah. I uh, learned how to change my brakes last month just it, by watching YouTube.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I've just, I've done so many things just watching YouTube. You don't need to be a carpenter. You don't need to be a plumber. You don't need to be anything. You can learn a lot of those, but it's the skills are overrated. Mm. Uh, and again, it's important, but they're overrated. What is important is the aptitude and the attitude, uh, the attitude that I will learn at whatever it, whatever it takes. Uh, When you hire people around you with that philosophy, they will, they will exude that. And when you're building the company, they will exude that when they're working with a partner, they would take that philosophy to anything they do. And no job is too big, no job is too less, which is again, back to the philosophy of polymath. But if you just play put yourself like, I'm a designer, I'm just going to design, you end up kind of not looking at other opportunities and other problems. And I actually see a lot of inefficiency of companies happening there at that angle. So when we look for people or when we groom people, when the people nurture through our system, uh, because now we have been seven years in in process. So that means we have had people who have been with us, you know, started seven years back as an apprentice and now moved on all the way to kind of much senior roles. So there's a whole system of, you know, people at different levels and having a lot of good experiences. Uh, But the key thing that comes back to it is we are looking for aptitude and attitude. Mm. Uh, so we are screening people so uh, on a lot of those details again going back to military we are looking at psychometric data also a lot, a lot significantly so that allows so because the biggest strength for us is our people who are delivering this value because we are, we are a knowledge working profession so we our brain how well it works and how well it computes is actually the well, how well the, the technology and the systems we design will compute so that's why we look for people with that aptitude and attitude. Last count we had 20 different educational disciplines uh, represented across our 50 uh, teammates, Uh, architects, fashion designers, uh, engineering, uh, different engineering backgrounds, college dropouts. Uh, Again, when you look for people for aptitude and attitude, the world just becomes such so much more open for picking people.
1: How would you define aptitude?
0: So aptitude is again, we are in a line of business where you're problem solving. Do you enjoy problem solving? Do you enjoy, like, you know, like, 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 for example, you say, let's start solving a problem. And I say, okay, what about this one? And then if you get, there some people who get irritated by, like, hey, what's up with like one more constraint coming and what's up with one more constraint coming and some people enjoy like, yeah, what would I do with that? They would uh-huh. go home, they would think about it, they would like, you, you, and they would come back, they have people who literally interviewed and said like, ah, I did not think about it. Then they send you an email like, I thought about it. I thought about these five other things because they get triggered in a way that, you know, they get excited about a problem and mm. not get bogged down by that. That's when I say you have an aptitude to problem solve because you get, your goal is to kind of go at that problem in any which ways, because what is a consulting firm? Why do people hire us? They hire us so we can solve problems that they themselves couldn't figure out. Yeah. We obviously have a toolkit of, you know, experience design, with deep user-centered methods. So we actually, so anybody in our team, we eat, sleep and drink problems, design problems. So we can actually go solve it. Problems could be anything. So that's, that's when I say the aptitude you have to have and an, you should enjoy that process. Otherwise you would hate it. it.
1: makes me think to think of the military again in a slightly different example, but when I was, um, are you familiar with Stephen Kotler and some of his, his work? No, I'm actually not. Oh man, he's got some brilliant books. One is called the uh, The Rise of Superman. The other is um, what's the one? Stealing Fire. And so he's a he's a flow researcher. Like he's he spent his his uh, academic career trying to research the science of flow states. Like how do people get into that peak that peak state? Right. He studies Navy SEALs. He studies Google. He studies professional athletes. All these different people. In his book, Stealing Fire, he talked about that one of the key traits that they look for in Navy SEALs as they're going through the sorting process of whether you're going to be a good fit for this or not is what they do under pressure. And in particular, when they're under pressure, do they merge with the team or do they retreat inwardly into themselves? And that's like an aptitude thing. Like, you can train it a little bit, but it's something they just start looking for all throughout BUDS and throughout the different training processes they have. Like, when we squeeze you, do you become a team player? Or do you retreat within yourself and, and get self-protective, right? And it makes me think of what you're talking about here, which is when a problem is in front of you, do you lean in with curiosity? Do you have a natural hunger for that? Or does the problem put you off and you're like, nah, I don't want to think about that. Is, is that, you see, what, you see what I'm say, saying there? Absolutely,
0: absolutely. And uh, you can start seeing that. You start seeing uh, that in interviews, you start seeing them in the work. That's why we also have apprenticeships. So we say that you're, do a six month apprenticeship if we join the system. And that's when we truly kind of up, lack of but it's boot camp. So you kind of are going through that process. The people should have had a transformative experience from the time they joined uh, and then the, uh, they finished it. Uh, if not, they would and then you also see how their emotional state is. So there's a lot of those variables there. So I think a lot of this, if you ask me, as we keep getting better and bigger, we, we will go very scientific in this to kind of get to the same constructs of you know picking up uh but that's exactly the point that what you have shared is uh, what's yeah. successful
1: and it's not judgmental either because we're just talking about your unique business and what it needs right so yeah. it's like yeah if you're not if you don't get curious by problems you might be a great fit at a different company where that's not a required element of it but what you guys are doing you just need a bunch of people who are genuinely you know switched on by the idea of complicated problems and figuring them out right
0: Absolutely. And see, most times when you're trying to look at experience design, UI design is a little different because uh, experience design, where you start looking at like, hey, sales is saying this, marketing is saying this, product is doing this. So now, but then I have never done sales. So, I mean, then people, they have to, but the swagger that comes in, like, no, let I'm inquisitive about the sales process. What why, why is sales saying this? Why is marketing saying this? Now, if you understand sales is run by the CFO, or the CRO, the marketing is run by a CMO. So there's a heavyweights running their groups. But yeah. here comes a group of people are like, I'm inquisitive. Why does sales do this? Why does marketing do this? Why does product do this? Why does customer success do this? It just seems like it's all circular and then everyone's getting confused. And they're like, so just being inquisitive about those conversations. Whereas most people would just say like, I'm designing a product and I'll be in the product. I don't care about what others are doing. And therefore you're not
1: adding the most value. Mm not to mention just in general, the power of asking curious questions is just such a powerful thing in relational dynamics, right? Okay. Like if your team is just good at that with the, with the customer, asking great questions, not only do you get more domain knowledge to, to accurately serve them, but they also like you better. And I'm not saying that's a reason why to do it, but it's, it's an advantage, right? Like, just being curious can take you the long, uh, a really long way, whereas sometimes we we feel like we need to come in with all the answers. Absolutely. Does that make sense?
0: Absolutely. In fact, I also say that the best work we do is, is running workshops where we get internal stakeholders to talk to each other, and we are just extracting insights from all the knowledge they already have, and uh, they are having the conversation. We are just kind of picking up all the insights, and so it's a... You're just catalyzing. That's why I like the yeah. form that, you know, we, we are UX Reactor. We, we kind of help build a reaction around user experience. Yeah. And uh, so that's kind of fundamentally is, is there's a power to that, that I don't think is, is is well understood in the business of people who actually bring people together and connect the dots because that's where value truly is
1: created. Mm. Well, it's so funny because I've seen it on this podcast that often in an hour conversation with a founder like yourself, they will make this assumption, which I hope they're right, but they'll make this assumption that like I'm a sharp guy or that I, you know, that I I know what I'm talking about. And I'm like, if you actually think about it, you did 80% of the talking and I was just asking questions. Right. (laughs) But, But it has this, this feeling of like connection and curiosity just goes a long way in relationships that we've been trying to teach our sales team the same thing. Like you don't have to have all the answers right away. In fact, save them. You know, if you actually do have an opinion, Make it be on the back end of a whole lot of understanding that you gained from asking questions. Don't speak too soon, you know, because you might not understand the context of the customer or what they're going through. Right. Um, so it makes me curious about this. And it, we keep going to the military. But have you guys integrated like the idea of the OODA loop at all into your problem solving ways of going about things?
0: No, we haven't. So actually, yeah, but- you'll love
1: it. I'm All right. You're going to love this. So uh, the OODA loop is stands for observe, orient, decide, and act, and it's a circle, right? So that's why they call it a loop. It's, it's basically a a uh, decision making cycle, and it was developed by Colonel. Shoot, what is his name? Somebody listening to the podcast is screaming it right now. <laughs> I'll, have to, I'll have to look it up later. He was he was a, I think a Navy pilot, and he was uh, infamous for the amount of you know battles won and kills and that kind of stuff but in particular as he was training other pilots they were up against a technologically superior force at the time which was the russian migs they were just hella faster like so much more horsepower so much more speed and so he said we can't win on that front but could we win by being more agile could we put ourselves in better positions than them and the answer was yes and the way that he did that was he taught them this loop he said, it's the about. It's how fast can you go through this cycle? How fast can you observe? And they, literally all the way down to the design of the uh, air canopy, the MIG was like, had this like, uh, I think a boxy kind of canopy and it left blind spots. Whereas they did this sleek overhaul canopy where you could see 360 degrees. And so they're like, we need you to observe really quickly where they are, orient yourself to them, and then make a, a quick decision into a quick action and then do the whole loop again. So like you just keep doing this loop and all of my friends who are in special forces say they use that in every mission they go on that they have they have OODA loop thinking observe orient decide act and you just keep taking in new feedback feedback loops to keep making better and better decisions quicker than your competitors does that make sense?
0: Absolutely and actually that that's a very very Profound construct that I you know, will will be added to my playbook now.
1: Yeah, uh, but it and, just creates it creates lifelong learners. It creates people that are like, no, it's not going through that cycle once. It's over and over again. Let's keep learning. Let's keep observing, orienting, and and we can keep pivoting ourselves, right? Absolutely, absolutely.
0: And I think a lot of people I I, I really admire people who uh, can framework things, which is back to frameworking is nothing but playbooking in a, in, a, in a way which is you kind of put it in a way and say I'm going to now pass it on to you. And that's actually, if you go back to in my alma mater, Harvard Business School, so many professors, so many techniques, there have been frameworked. The military Mm -hmm. is obviously another thing, like the SWOT analysis. That was frameworked by a professor saying, "This is how you think about a business: what's your strength, weakness, opportunities, and threats." Same way the five P's of marketing. They just you kind of start getting into those, frameworking, and you start looking at what are the best way to playbook anything is framework. And I actually. This Uda Loop is uh, sounds very very uh, fascinating. And I Same
1: just, uh, as a as a coach, I'm always looking for something that you can remember, right? It's like a tool. Like, yeah, you could you can take that, you can remember that, you can apply that. It it takes big concepts and puts it in, a, like you said, a framework that can you can build off of, right?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: So for you, I w- I wanted to go back and ask you this because you mentioned this earlier. What are some of the processes in terms of you? You even mentioned an apprenticeship. So that's part of your process of grooming talent. What are some of the processes you you've you have in place that you find particularly uh, helpful? So I would say that
0: there's obviously our talent building and all the stuff. We've spent a lot of you know, significant time talking about that. There's also a lot of process around how we approach problem solving, how we look at problems. What's like we talk about three levels of inspiration? Uh like mm. so if I if you ask me to design a uh like I'll, actually I'll give you a more uh, specific example. If an e-commerce company is trying to build trust, you know, the easiest way to do it is like everybody else saying like, what are other e-commerce companies doing? So that's what I call a level one inspiration. You just go pick up things what others are doing and say, okay, they, I, I think uh, eBay is doing this, Amazon's doing this, let's do something similar. The second level of, you know, inspiration when you start looking at, you know, thinking about the world, you're like, what are other systems like healthcare doing? What's teaching doing? Uh, and so on and so forth but if you really want to look at uh, you know the third level which is kind of the highest level of inspiration that you can gather when you're problem solving uh, you start looking into uh, you know okay how does a uh, you know maybe a psychotherapist kind of build really, uh, trust with uh, a person that so you start learning from techniques that how does a you know a teacher build trust with a student and you can take those constructs and then also build that off but these are all the world is your canvas and world is your inspiration you just have to kind of extract data from that uh, so we a lot of these techniques is like processes around how you look at a problem how do you frame it how do you go about approaching it? Uh, how do you ideate? How do you discuss it? How do you bring people to collaborate? So uh, we have over 100 different plays that we kind of work with within the construct of uh, business. We can actually tell businesses a way to kind of pivot their business lines based on what the customers are saying. So there's a lot of unique nuances and that kind of keeps getting better and better. So there's processes around talent, processes around the, uh, the people, there's environmental variables. We actually, before the pandemic, we would all take annual vacations together as a company. Mm. Uh, and uh, just because you know, again, the fact of camaraderie comes when you are spending more context and more time with each other. Uh, for the, the, again, the pandemic kind of threw a spanner in that. But these are all aspects when you're building a team. We look at our group as alumni. I mean, I I always say this with each person on the team that each person's value should be a billion dollars by the time they retire, in terms of value they create. Yeah, uh, and uh, and because we, we, in a sense, us you're training and building and grooming problem solvers. Whether they are at UX React or outside, that's a mentality that they should take. And just like a Navy SEAL is a Navy SEAL for life, uh, and and that's the same mentality. So all these things are procedures, processes, techniques that we're trying to kind of standardize more and more. And I think if you think if we're an overly, we're trying to become an overly standardized organization that kind of has standard ways of approaching uh, and uh, getting to the same outcome.
1: Man, what sticks out to me that you have done really, really well is you've gotten some real like actual clarity. And there's even like a, a strength of identity that you've built into this company, right? Where you just, you, you're very clear on certain things. Like this is our playbook. This is our, our way of doing this. This is the problem we're solving. Here's who we are. We, you know, we feel like we want you to have be, become a kind of person who, who's had a billion dollars of, of value added to the world. Like that is a very clear and inst- and strong sense of identity.
0: I mean, it is, right? So at some point, you have to have some vision where you're taking a firm. Uh, I, so when I, I started my career and I moved to the Bay Area for a company called PayPal. And uh, and this was an ethos, again, uh, that I learned very early when I, was, I joined PayPal right after it was acquired by eBay. And a lot of the senior leaders just were like Elon and all these guys had just moved out about a year back. So there was still a lot of the but the one thing that I've kept hearing again and again was a term that you will still see in the business world called the PayPal mafia. Uh, these are people that left PayPal and they ended up building uh, insane amount of value. Uh, I mean, a lot of companies see uh, their uh, genesis from that PayPal mafia. In fact, yeah. uh, Fortune magazine had, or Forbes had done an article that they said, close to about $300 billion worth value was created at that point. But I guess wow. that probably crossed a trillion now because Peter Thiel was one big part of it. Uh, Elon was part of it. So there's so much value that was created by that mafia. The, the same construct applies to you as like when you as a leader, what is your ethos in this system? Because I mean, think of what all of us as leading companies, we, the people we touch, the, the companies we the touch, are we actually making value for them as their trajectory changed? And where do you want that trajectory to change? And that's fundamentally is where I'd say, like, and I look at each person at UX Reactor, who are part of it, who are, were part of it, are all, you know, valuable, uh, you know, change makers wherever they go. And when you look at that over a 40-year career, that's when we truly really look at, the, you know, they are making value of insane uh, amount.
1: I, I love it. I love it. Again, it's it's a compliment to you, because uh, uh, again, I've done so many interviews, I'm a business owner myself, and I can see how easy it is to actually be successful as a company, but still be being held back to your true potential, because there's a lot of kind of a maybes. We're kind of like this, maybe we'll do this, you know, it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that, versus like, we are going to be this. This is who we are. This is, and I don't mean in a rigid way, because there's also an incredible amount of uh, ag- agility and ability to evolve but there's also things that are very clear and defined and that's got to make the culture stronger
0: it, it, it is and again it's it's i mean i'll be foolhardy in saying that it all works magically right so as, as a leader you need to constantly keep keep to the, the way you're trying to take it like you should we say this in design we say this as also i would say like you should know what way you're trying to take your design to you should know and and because you could put five buttons or one button, that's not the point. You could put like four workflows or one workflow, that's not the point. The point is have you solved the problem that you started to solve. And, and as long as you're on, on on goal with that, and this is also the military style again, we, we always talk about it. When everyone in the, reg- in the troop or the platoon needs to know the commander's intent. Yeah. Even if one soldier is left, they need to know the commander's intent. They will take it and they'll make that happen. And otherwise, what'll happen is like you know, if everyone's looking to one person, then if, you know, just immediately. That's why, if you look at old war strategies, you take out the king, and everybody just implodes. But yeah. then you look at Roman empires; that's that, that strategy fails because you know le- the legionaries were trained, drilled to kind of next person up, and that's what the true military uh, structure comes to be. And I would say that the same applies here. But as we, as a firm, we're tr- keeping true to the vision. Uh, but it's a journey. I mean, you still find people that are not uh, in there. You still see processes that are not completely there, and you keep working on, you know, adjusting it, adjusting it, and that's kind of what I say. That as I started, UX Reactor was a grand experiment. It still remains an experiment, right? We yeah. are all we are trying to do is we're experimenting a way towards, uh, and we always uh, one thing you'll hear consistently in my leadership staff is, is that an experiment or is that a fact? And if it's an experiment, let's do it. I mean, let, let's 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 move forward. Uh, if it's a fact, then you know we will 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 work uh, around it. Uh, and that that mentality of like let's experiment is actually a big ethos overall.
1: I like that. So tell me what the difference between would be if you said something was a fact versus an experiment.
0: See, uh like experiment would be like let's try this compensation uh, style like model let's try you know doing this so that's an experiment if somebody comes and says hey how about we giving people uh, completely work from home uh, you know flexibility right so that's an experiment you don't know what the outcome could be you don't know where that is. the fact is you give people uh, work from home or you give people some privilege it will for sure happen the outcome will be this at that point it's a fact so you don't need to kind of experiment on fact you know what it is you've done it before you know what the data is uh we, we know that you know if we give somebody zero dollar salary will they will not join yeah, so that's yeah. a fact, right but we know yeah. if, uh, what the experiment of what if we actually include a higher variable versus a, a, a that's an experiment let's let's try it out let's see where that goes and we'll adjust through that and then that's basically what i would say is uh the difference between what you know versus what you don't know Obviously, what you don't know, uh, you're trying to expand. I
1: love it. Well, before we dive into the lightning round questions, my final question would just be, uh, what do you what are you excited about for the future of this company? What's where where are you looking at right now? <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I'm I'm excited on so many fronts because I think if you ask us, we are in the line of solving business problems through design, uh, and that when you frame it that way, there's so many things we could do, and and I'm excited about all the things we we have. We can innovate, uh, we are obviously helping companies with uh, their uh, experiential layer and their user-centeredness. We're also looking at you know, possibly opening up a fund to invest in companies that also follow, follow that philosophy. Uh, we are looking at obviously, uh, we, a lot of uh, our clients have started asking for the talent that we have been internally grooming. They say, can we get that kind of talent for ourselves? So we are also looking at, you know, spinning out uh, a separate business just to train and, and groom talent for the, cool. for the company. So there's so much opportunities and, and where, where things kind of look forward to. So I'm very excited for, uh, you know, where we are going with this.
1: That's awesome. Okay. Let's do our five lightning round questions. These are five questions we've asked every founder on the podcast. We're going to start with question number one. If you could ingrain one message into your entire organization, what would that message be?
0: It's okay to fail. And if you want me to elaborate on that, it's just like, again, it's it's an experimental mindset. You you try it, you do it fast. There's a construct we always talk about, which is what's the cost of experimentation. And if the cost of experimentation is negligible, you should have already done it. If it was a little bit more, then let's have a conversation. And most times when you look at it, the cost of experimentation is really, really low. I mean, what's Mm -hmm. the worst that'll happen? Not much, so we should just do
1: it. I love it. I love that ethos. All right, question number two what is the single best advice you've ever gotten about growing your business? And then also what was the worst?
0: <laughs> uh, I think the single best advice I've gotten to grow the business. I, I would say I got this advice early on when I was saying, second guessing myself and uh, like, should I do this? Should I not do this? And uh, and this point was uh, my mentor's point was, you know, what's the worst that will go wrong, which is again, the first thing. And and I, I'm like, yeah, that, The worst is not as worst as it seems like. It's not going to kill the company. So, I mean, that was one good thing. Uh, The worst advice I've gotten so far, I don't know if there's really worst, worst, but there is obviously a lot of advice that you get around, uh, hey, you should look at, uh, you know, you are a a professional services firm, should think of yourself as a professional service firm. Why are you thinking about other things? And my point was like, uh, because... You know, because that's a possibility. I mean, it doesn't mean that what others have done is what we should do. But I keep getting that advice a lot more uh, where they try to structure you and pigeonhole you into a model.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like people are asking you the question, why, whereas you fundamentally believe the question, why not? Right. Why not? Just let me run the data. Let me run an experiment. (laughs) Okay, cool. Number three, what currently causes you the most stress or worry leading your organization?
0: I think the time we are in the pandemic has obviously been challenging. When you build a high camaraderie organization and you're trying to do that all on Zoom, the big challenge. Uh, and uh, it does cause me a lot of that. we're going to lose our, uh, that sense of purpose and identity when you're trying to be literally uh, 40% of a team has been hired during the pandemic. Uh, wow. So we haven't met each other. There's a lot of all, all those variables. So I think that still keeps, up, keeps me up on night. Uh, like how do we continue to build that ethos Uh, and camaraderie while you never have met each other. And I hope that, you know, uh, that this pandemic will be behind us sooner or later and that we can come back to that uh, that style.
1: Love it. Okay. Question number four, what is your current BHAG, your big, hairy, audacious goal?
0: I think I already probably shared it. I mean, I would want every person that uh, joined or, or as part of UX Reactor, to be a you know a billion dollar. Uh, hopefully, inflation doesn't you know play a big part to that. But <laughs> they yeah, are adding billion dollars in value each uh, in in any organization. I also have this philosophy of the 10x. Uh, we say if you don't touch a company and we are not adding 10x the value for them, then we are not adding value. The mm-hmm. uh, same way I say this, thing, and I always say. Uh, Conversation or compensation is also fun to that extent. But anyway, BHAG is, is uh, from a individual perspective is are you adding insane value in the world that we are in? And from a business standpoint is uh, are we also adding that insane value for our uh, customers? So we, we want to see more, especially early stage startup. We want to see more billion dollar companies that are getting into that stage because of the work we're doing. For them.
1: Cool. I love it. Okay. Question number five. This is our fun, creative question. It's a break from all the business questions. So... We're going to play Back to the Future. If you could get into a DeLorean, you get to travel back to your past. But there's one rule, and that's that you can only shout one thing out the window to your former self as you drive by. When would you go back, and what message would you pass along to that earlier or that younger version of yourself?
0: I probably would have gone back uh, probably 2008, right around when the you know, financial crisis happened. And probably just have shouted out like, "Do it now!" Uh, And because you're always second guessing a lot of times on when should you uh, do it. The playbook was already coming together in my mind. Like, we should do it differently. We should do it now. But you start second guessing. Like, can I afford it? Can I do this? Can I not do that? Mm. And uh, when you're starting a firm when you're younger is very different when you're starting it uh, in mid-career. And I would just say that you know you are much more resilient. You know you can deal with you know. Your body deals with things differently. Yeah. So, uh, I just think that's what I would say. They Do it sooner than uh, doing it later.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Well, Satyam, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. This has been a very, very inspiring conversation. I've learned a whole bunch from you. So I really appreciate you giving us your time and your wisdom. It's been an honor. Likewise. Thank you so much.
0: Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.